The history of television is a history of failure. For every television series that lasted years and years, there were dozens that lasted only one season or less. But did they deserve to die? Or were they... Cancelled too soon? The Cancel Too Soon, the podcast where we review television series that last only one season or less. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic, write for The Wrap, IGN, other places as well. Everyone calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. Thought I'd put on a little spin, give a different mm. read today. Yeah. Maybe, maybe something a little more bedroom friendly. Mm. My name is Whitney Seibold. Oh, yeah. Welcome to the late hour on Cancel Too Soon. Oh, it's late. <laughs> God, remember our opening for our first opening music? Oh, golly, yes. Yeah, our first like fifty episodes of this, this show. This, had this weird, weird sort of like sexy porn music. Yeah, this yeah. like Skinamax thing. Like it was a complete miscommunication <laughs> between me <laughs> and the people who wrote it. But it was mm. weird, and we committed to it for a while. But I think this is more our speed. I, I like our I like our current uh, theme song yeah. by Andy Hentz. By the way, we don't give him a uh, credit on the show a we, lot. But, we told uh, him we wanted uh, we wanted it to sound like an, a 1980s action show. Yeah, I said, I said watch the A-Team theme a lot and give me something like that. And he had, he did not disappoint. Nope, it's pretty sweet. As, as I told him when I first heard it, like, you, you can picture the van exploding. <laughs> <laughs> I always wanted to record, like, a video of us, like, doing various things, mm-hmm. like, from, like, 80s shows. Like, there's a bit where we have, like, a one of those phones with cords mm. and we're like both listening in on it like all oh, like leaning in together on like, the same hmm, phone yeah yes something interesting is being said or, or like the gl- glory shot and I, I sadly the listeners can't see me doing this but like my back to you and i kind of like turn around and look over my shoulder and kind of smile cock my head a little bit yeah and then then freeze frame and my credit appears the slow-mo shot of the two of us walking down a hallway well that's the law and order has that on lock yeah but they weren't the only ones buffy the vampire slayer did that too that's Mm -hmm. just the thing that ensemble shows do just sort of just like uh, brooklyn 99 Mm -hmm. every opening credits ends with that shot I kind of wish Star Trek would do that. Can you imagine, like, everybody kind of walking abreast in the holodeck, kind of laughing? (laughs) Executive producer Rick Berman, you know, whatever it was. Uh, we are desperately trying not to talk about this week's show. <laughs> uh, this week's show was a donation uh-huh. from one of our many listeners. Yeah. We want to thank you very, very much. It's a show that was on our list from very, very, very early on. Uh, is a one of the few shows that aired on HBO that only lasted one season because they don't like to admit defeat over there. They really don't. Most shows get at least a couple of seasons if they make it onto HBO. So a true one season and wonder is relatively rare mm. um but by god this was one of them this show aired premiered right after the series finale of the sopranos yep it's television event and i'm telling you this right now the last scene in the sopranos 
was a dick move to the show that came on right afterwards. Well, in in a way, it was almost the perfect precursor. You know, I've, I haven't seen The Sopranos. I haven't seen a single frame of The Sopranos, but I know how it ends mm-hmm. because it was kind of notorious. Yeah, and it ends, uh, on, it ends on something uh, so to- arguably very anticlimactic mm-hmm. and puzzling. Uh, Tony Soprano, the main character, uh, was in a diner, I believe. Yep, and. I don't recall what was happening in the scene, but like it wasn't any something dramatic. Nothing was leading to that scene. It was just yeah. a scene at a diner, and uh, "Don't Stop Believing" was playing on the jukebox, and then in the middle of the song, the screen just cuts to black, and that's the end of the well, show. Not quite. Like someone comes in from the door okay. of the diner, and you can't see who it is, but Tony Soprano looks up, mm. and then credits. Okay. And, and the idea, the implication is was that he will he be looking might- over his shoulder for the rest of his life. I, I also heard the theory that, that that was just the way they visualized his death. That's how he could, like just like, he won't lights out. No, yeah. the rest of it. That, those are two popular theories. Mm. Either way, here's how the show ended. You don't know. Mm. That's how they wanted it to end. So they wanted was, you to speculate. And so after so what, well, all of that buildup, you're well, going, huh? And Maybe a show whose entire premise is predicated on, huh? Wasn't the right way to go. Well, surf that ambiguity and keep on surfing that ambiguity into a show about surfing. We're going to be talking about, ladies and gentlemen, John from Cincinnati. Can we try my dad again? Sure we can. Then why don't we get out of the car and bang our heads on that lamppost? I will murder you in your sleep. Don't forget to lube up your phone on phone knee, Dad. Don't forget to shoot up some courage. I'm not confusing you two with the Huxtables. Michios, a wonderful surfer from before the talkies. Does that make you Butchios' mother? Oh, is that a crime now, too? Michios should get back in the game. Hello, Michios. Butchios, I know. Butchios rings a bell. I'm Sean. I'm John. I got my eye on you. No, I got my eye on you. I'm looking into a nut job. Ascertain if he's wanted or missing. I'd like to bone you, Kai. You want some of the talking city, dude. You want some of that? I want some. Just when you think he's run out of doofuses, why don't you come up with him? What is your name? I ain't afraid of you, pal. Where is that guy from? Cincinnati. If there's one thing I've learned mm-hmm. from John from Cincinnati, from... Uh, watching the show, from writing notes about the show, from mm-hmm. looking up the show on, uh, you know, online, trying to find out more information about it. It's that at some point in my life, someone taught me the wrong spelling of Cincinnati. Oh yeah, where I you're keep, spelling it with two T's. I keep wanting to spell it with one N and two T's. I, I have the same problem with the word graffiti. I have to uh, look up every single time which letter is double, the F or the T. It's the F, right? It's the F. Okay, God. <laughs> you really freaked me out for a second. I was like, wait yeah. a minute. What else am I doing wrong? <laughs> no. Um, John from Cincinnati is a television series that ran on HBO from June 10th through August 12th in 2007. Only one season, obviously, because it's on this show. <laughs> um, it was created by two people with interesting pedigrees. Uh, mm. First off, it was created by David Milch an Emmy award-winning TV producer who worked on shows like NYPD Blue and Deadwood, but not everything he did was a success. He also had a bunch of Cancel Too Soon shows we haven't gotten to yet, like Luck or Big Apple or Beverly Hills Bunts with Dennis Franz. 
What, but like bunt cakes? No, like bunt b u n t z. His name was Bunts. Ah, that's a terrible film, I, show I, title. I think it's a spinoff of Hill Street Blues. It's still a terrible show it's title. It's a terrible title. Yeah. No, no, no arguments there. Uh, and it was also co-created by uh, a writer named Kem Nunn. Now, Kem Nunn wrote for Deadwood, and he wrote uh, uh, for Sons of Anarchy. There's a television series on now or just recently on based on a novel he wrote called Chance with Hugh Laurie. Mm. But apparently he is best known uh, for writing surf noir. Yeah, he was a novelist who... um yeah, well, I mean, you look at a, a lot of noir films, a lot of them are set in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. so why not set them in Venice, you know, where there's sort of a surf culture, but yeah. there's also kind of a dingy quality that allows crime to creep in around the edges. Well, and this is something we see in John from Cincinnati. John mm-hmm. from Cincinnati is a show set in the surfing community, but not in a cute, fun, youthful, Frankie and Annette kind of way this is a town full of burnouts people who did way too many drugs Mm. and now no longer like entirely trust them their own sanity and uh, they have a lot of baggage and a lot of misery and a lot of quasi spiritualism and they live their lives in kind of a haze yeah, like, and I think that's a good way to describe the show. Very hazy. It's set in a, a real city called Imperial Beach, California, which is south of San Diego and really close to Tijuana. It's just mm. just near the border. Yeah, and uh, in in the world of this show, Imperial Beach is kind of a really dingy town. Mm-hmm. Um, just everything's run down. Uh, one of the main settings is an abandoned motel. Um, it's not quite as as miserable as Benji Zacks and the Alien Prince. Like it doesn't have that that kind of <laughs> doesn't po- feel like po- a Harmony Korean. Yeah, po- post Hurricane yeah. Harmony Korean filth. You, but it reminds me of. Did you ever see Surf Nazis Must Die? Oh yes, I have. Okay, so Surf Nazis Must Die um, is tra- actually a trauma pretty, film. It's actually a pretty good trauma film. Uh, it <laughs> there's, is about, there's more more going on in that film than you might think. Yeah, it's it's about a hate crime that occurs on the beach, but basically, and it's about the uh, mother of the victim going on a mission of revenge against a bunch of surfers who are also Nazis. Mm. Um, there's actually amazing surfing footage in it. it. It has, I think, a relatively smart sense of humor about what it's doing. It knows not to take itself too seriously, but it also knows it needs to be very firmly against Nazis. Right. <laughs> it's it's a better movie than you would think from the title, but I wouldn't go so far or as even, to call it good. It, it's certainly it's no classic, no. but you know it's it's more restrained uh, c- when compared to other trauma movies. I think a lot of people go through a period when they start exploring the fringes of cinema when they discover trauma. <laughs> yeah, and when you're young, when you're a teenager, when you're in college or around that area, um, what trauma does is very exciting because they're just unapologetically well, profane. Th- they what they do is they give you the movie that the poster promises. Yeah. You you used to see all these old B movies from the the 50s all the way through the 80s that had these really elaborate paintings, you know, from uh you know, death stalker type of things. There was like these big monsters and these big, you know, greasy dudes with swords. And not that they were able to provide the production value because they made their moves for $50 a piece. Yeah. And they shot them all in New Jersey, but, yeah. uh, they were trying to provide the 
incident and the excitement and the profanity that that s- such a poster would promise. Yeah, the gore, the sex, mm. the nudity. It was all in there. And Some of them are smarter than you'd think. Mm. Most of them are not. And uh, But when you go through that journey mm. and when you hit Surf Nazis Must Die, you'll be like, wow, that's surprisingly a that's real pretty, movie. It's pretty good. It's like Killer yeah. Condom is like, oh, this is actually a smart film about like gender politics. It's, yeah, I mean, it's still and, scuzzy, but like it's it's mm. a real motion picture. But, but speaking of scuzzy, we got to get back to well, John from I, Cincinnati. I brought it up because Surf Nazis Must Die feels like it takes, you know, you see movies set on a beach and they're Baywatchy and pretty and commercialized mm. and gorgeous, or they're sort of this sort of Terrence Malick, beautiful, oh, look at that great vista. Mm. And then there's John from Cincinnati where half the time it's overcast well, and everyone's yeah. kind of miserable and only serves to escape the existential mm. nightmare that their life has become. I, I was raised in Santa Monica, California. We're really close to the beach. And I lived in Venice for a little bit as well. And Venice has been, like, in the last few years, has, like, been super gentrified. But when when I was there, like, less than a decade ago, um, I guess it was about a decade ago, th- things weren't quite picking up yet. And Venice is very good block, bad block. It's uh, rife with gang activity. Mm-hmm. A lot of really, really, really bad areas of town. Uh, things that are just... You know, you go to the beach and you realize beaches are sunny and blissful, but also kind of dirty and they smell of beer. They're kind of a litter box. Yeah. If you you put enough people on them. Yeah. They're they're, they're filthy locations. I still like the beach. Oh, I love Venice Beach, personally. I think it's just a great community. It's it's an awesome awesome community, but it's filthy. Yeah. uh, For everything that's awesome, there's something that you kind of want to walk around. and. I think John from Cincinnati is trying to capture that vibe that a beach is not not this sort of halcyon romantic place. It's kind of a scuzzy place. Right. And I think and it does a good job of that. It does an okay job of that if it weren't so distracted and if it didn't spend so much damn time away from the fucking beach. <laughs> This is ostensibly a show about surfing. I think there are three surfing scenes throughout the the course of the whole series. And by there's a couple of like insert shots or like really brief things, but scenes that revolve around surfing. Yeah, there's like three. Yeah, and, um, and for a show that's about surfers and surfing and the surf lifestyle and indeed the surf philosophy, mm-hmm. there's frustratingly little surfing going on. Well, let's let's assume for a moment that that's them intentionally being ironic. Because they mm. knew how much surfing they were putting in their show. They well, had to but, know. But the, the show is predicated on like what you hear a lot of surfers talk about in those surf documentaries. About sort of the oneness of everything and mm-hmm. the, the ephemeral yet pure nature of the, the, what the sport represents. And that's what Bruce Greenwood's character constantly says. Bruce Greenwood is the patriarch of the, Yo- the Yost family. Uh, or the Yost, Yost family. Yeah. And, uh, they're uh, the protagonists. The, yeah, the Yost family are the, are the main characters, and um, yeah, it's Bruce Greenwood from uh, Nowhere Man, but you also might remember him from uh, as Captain Pike in the mm-hmm. rebooted Star Trek movies. Uh, he plays the patriarch. He was a surfing uh, god in his youth, but he has stepped away from the sport. Only serves for for occasional recreation. Uh, his wife Sissy is played by Rebecca De Mornay. Uh, she runs their surf shop. That's their main business. Um, and she is kind no of no one's at, no one's ever in the shop, and hard, they like yeah. twice in the show someone's mm-hmm. in the shop, and, uh, and she's real hard ass. They are raising uh, a their, kid, their grandson. Yeah, not their son. They're raising their grandson. Uh, and yes, is, yes, they're young grandparents. That's that's it's a intentional. Block it's part of the show. Yeah, yeah, that's that that's a thing. 
Um, yeah, Sean, played by Grayson Fletcher, and this is kind of the only thing he's done. Well, he, uh, he's a real surfer. Yeah. Um, he's like, a, he's 13 or 14. The character's 14, and, uh, he's, yeah, like a real surfer wonderkin. Like and he, he's an actual known surfer and he, in the surfing world. And in the show, he talks, like, his cadence mm. is like he's been smoking pot every day for 40 years. Well, or he's a surfer. Potato, potato. <laughs> Touche. Yeah. Um, and uh, their son, Sean's father, mm. is Butchie, played by Brian Van Holt. Uh, Butchie is a heroin addict who lives at a rundown, almost completely deserted no, motel. It is deserted. Except it's for not, him. It's, yeah, it's not it's a... Hence, almost. He's, he's squatting. Yeah, he's squatting in a motel. Mm. Luis Guzman runs the motel, but basically he's just keeping the lights on until it gets a new owner. They expect the new owner is just going to bulldoze the place. Yeah. But it turns out the new owner actually uh, has visions from God and he wants to do... Stuff. Something significant about it. Yeah, he's he's played by Matt Winston. He won the lottery, um, and then that's what he wanted was to reopen Bates Motel. Essentially. Yep. Um, meanwhile, there's a guy named John. Yeah, John is not the main character of the show. John is is an ancillary presence. John is the impetus mm. for stuff to happen. There's a sort of equilibrium. People are living their lives, going about their business, and then when John enters the picture, mm. things change. And John is played by Austin Nichols uh, from One Tree Hill. He was also in The Day After Tomorrow. He's also terrible. <laughs> he's terrible in this show. In fact, most of the acting is pretty unilaterally terrible in this from show. Even good actors. Even from good actors. Yeah. Because I think they don't know what the hell the show is about. And each of their characters only has... They're like Ninja Turtles. They only have one personality trait apiece. Mm -hmm. There's no modulation at all from scene to scene. Um, pretty much. I yeah. think of a couple of minor exceptions, but they're all pretty... Um, yeah. So mm. Rebecca De Mornay spends probably about eighty five percent of her dialogue shouting. Yeah, she, I, I just I was talking about it with you earlier, and I said she went to the Mink Stoll School of Acting. Yeah. If you haven't seen Mink Stoll's opening rave from uh, from the movie Desperate Living, please first of all please see it. Just rent Desperate Living because it's great. But that opening scene of it's just Mink Stoll charging around a house and screaming at the people that she meets and then just screaming in between, like going from scene to scene. She's just ranting, and the government is terrible. Oh, my God, you could get pregnant. Tell your mother I hate her. Tell your mother I hate you. Mink Stoll is a treasure, all okay. right? Uh, Rebecca de Mornay is doing that. She's Rebecca just screaming at everybody about how everything's awful. There's a, a couple episodes late in this show. Where uh, Sean, Shawnee, goes missing. And uh, they don't know what happened to him. We know what happened to him. We know where he is. Well, sort of. Kind of. But she begins freaking out. And she runs to somebody and says, Shawnee is missing! Well, what are we going to do? I don't know! You know what and it then is? she charges to another person. I'm gonna... What's going on, Rebecca Dormernay? Shawnee is missing! I'm going to, I'm going to make a, a closer parallel for uh. younger people who maybe haven't seen... That John Waters film, yet. <laughs> yeah, well, yet. they will. They will, of course. Yeah. Uh, the original film, Wet Hot American Summer. Uh, the phone! Oh, the, the phone! phone! Where's the, the fucking, fucking phone? phone? <laughs> like, it's that level at almost every scene she's uh, got. And every scene where she isn't there, she will get there by the end of the scene. Uh, 
And again, she has uh, Rebecca DuBernay is actually a really good actor. She's, she doesn't get enough credit. It depends on her role. Well, yeah, but I think I think her, she's good at the like, right material. Right. She's really quite good, and the material is asking this of her. Uh-huh. You know, even if you look at that like kind of crappy remake of Mother's Day. Like she's really good in that. She's really good in that. Yeah, all right. Um, here she doesn't have much to work with. Bruce Greenwood plays, you he's know, just a grump, burnout, yeah. a grumpy burnout. You know, used to be a sports star. Now he's anti-sports. Uh, Brian he's, Van Holt plays drug addict, so he's fine until he's screaming. Mm. Um, and and, and, often, he's, and he screams some really horrendous things too. Oh, 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 oh! Like there's this, there's a weird tendency in the show. So if like. The show is ten episodes long, mm. and by episode eight, around episode eight, at least two characters, you find out one thing about them in like a really uncomfortable scene uh-huh. that makes you hate their ever-loving guts, even though they're <laughs> protagonists. We'll talk about that a little bit yeah. later, but like Butchie and Sissy, mm. you find out things about them where I'm just like, I really wish you hadn't gone there. Like, I really <laughs> but wish. you did. Yeah. Um, and there's a whole bunch of other characters here, too. You got Ed O'Neill from Married with Children playing mm. Bill Jacks, who's well, here's... a former cop who now mm. talks to birds and is grieving <laughs> over his dead wife and and, and he ta- talks to his dead wife and he thinks his birds have magic powers. I literally could not get a hold of this character. Like, I yeah. understand Rebecca Dormin- De Mornay is angry. Mm. Like, at least I get that. <laughs> what's, I have, what's my motivation? You're angry. Action! Yeah, like, yeah. Th- that's at least a clearly defined character. I don't get Ed O'Neill's <laughs> like he's, character. He, he's really sentimental except in certain scenes where he's like almost like a drill instructor type and then yeah. then he's really mellow and helpful but then, then he's really within, homophobic yeah and, and then like, yeah. it's yeah just like he, he modulates so he's, so quick oh, it's like a different character place. um yeah there was um who is the the really like skittish guy who had a stroke um who was living at the motel with the teddy bears Oh the uh, um oh the the lottery guy just uh, the, yeah the lottery guy uh just um, Barry played by Matt Winston one Barry one, yeah. that's the character's name okay uh, his character he starts off as like uh you know what I've had a I've had a bit of a hard life but now mm. that I've won all this money I wanted to mm. buy this place clean it up I wanted to do some stuff and then there's a traumatic incident that happens to him and then. Mm. He's fractured for the rest of the show. Yeah. And again, it's just really hard to get a beat on. Because Mm. every single character, I would say with the blissful exception of Luis Guzman. Mm. And he's not a protagonist. He's not a main character. Every single character on this show would be the weird one in any other show. They're all the weird ones. Now, you can do that kind of. Like, Twin Peaks did that, where it's a whole town full of weirdos. Mm. But the difference is that in Twin Peaks, there was some idea that there was normal and then there was this. Here in John from Cincinnati, it's all eccentric all the time. It is a bunch of confused people waiting impatiently, often for entire episodes, for something confusing to happen to them. And it will. And you won't get it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see, other characters. There was uh, 
Dr. Smith. Mm. Uh, Sadly, not that Dr. Smith. Uh, Played by Garrett Dillahunt. Who's really good in this, actually. I actually like him a lot. It's because he's the only one who's reacting to this like a normal person would. Yeah. Because some weird, extraordinary, semi-supernatural things begin happening in John from Cincinnati. And he's the only one who's like actually trying to solve the mystery. Well, he's... Who has like a goal. Well, he sees something (laughs) mystical happen. Uh And as a scientist, he immediately goes, okay, this changes everything I know. I need to rethink my life. Everyone else sees something mystical and then they go about their fucking day. Yeah. And I don't fucking get it. Um, um, we we haven't talked about Link yet, who's played by Luke Perry. He uh, owns like a, a surf company that yeah. the, the Yosts used to be in charge, used to be uh, sponsored by, but aren't anymore. They do surfing gear. Yeah. They do surf. They sponsor surfing contests. And, and previously, he was like Butchie's manager, but then Butchie fell into but Butchie Butchie, Butchie fell into heroin, and now the entire Yost family mm-hmm. hates his ever loving guts. But now that young Sean is showing a lot of potential as a professional surfer. Uh, Luke Perry wants to sign. Link is showing some more interest again. Yeah. Link is. Uh, has employed a reporter named Cassie who spends most of the series in a motel room Uh uh, just looking at TV screens and getting hypnotized so she's not really even in charge of what's going on Mm -hmm. Cass is played by Emily Rose who starred in the sci-fi original series Haven she also stars in the Uncharted video game series so she's doing rather well for herself Um, Um, there was Kai yeah who I actually really like. I, I like I like Kai because Kai, she's the one who seems to feel a little bit more natural in this setting. Well, Kai, uh, hold on a second. What's what's her name? Kai is played by Kiala Kennelly. Uh, Kiala Kennelly is a is a real surfer. She I think made her acting debut in the movie Blue Crush, which was a minor hit in the early two thousands or late nineties. She works at the surf shop with Sissy, and she's often Sean's babysitter. Mm -hmm. And as the story progresses, she falls into a actually rather rather decent romantic subplot with Butchie. But what I like about Kai is actually how she responds to John. Now, we've been very careful not to talk a lot about John, because John is infuriating. (laughs) (laughs) I want to set up John here. Okay, so the first episode, we were introduced to a lot of these characters, but the linchpin, the person who sets all the events in motion... Well, first of all, keep in mind, of the, the main group of characters, count them, there's 12 of them. The initials <laughs> for the show are J, F, C. Jesus. Christ. So so we're going to deal with some religious stuff. So uh, Jim Beaver from Supernatural, really fun actor. Uh, he plays a Vietnam vet uh, who uh, sort of patrols the border and helps illegals come into the country. He's a pretty good guy. And on the border, he runs into John. John is a cipher. He can only say what people say to him. But over mm. the course of the series, he keeps collecting phrases and starts using them again in new contexts to make you think. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other thing about John is that he always has in his pockets whatever he needs. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, I'll get you across the border for $300. He happens to have $300. Mm-hmm. Someone else says, oh, I need $15,000 to buy this car. He happens to have $15,000. He happens to have a license. He happens to have a credit card. That car but scene then, was weird, wasn't it? But then yeah. they'll like t- turn out his pockets and he's got nothing. Yeah. So, so he's clearly from the start. Supernatural. Supernatural. It's... Uh, 
whether he's so, some people imply that he might be a robot, but yeah, he has, he's robot alien being from another dimension, literally the son of God. He's 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 literally the son of God. Um, yeah, he, he is Jesus Christ, uh-huh. or Jesus, or I got the impression possibly. Uh-huh. He's the son of Christ as opposed to the son of God. Well, the, he begins talking about my father and my father's words about halfway through the show. And my and, father's and, father, and then talks who about speaks his father's to my father, father, but not to me. Right. So he, he's, yeah, sort of the begotten son of Jesus Christ. He's mm-hmm. another Christ. He's a new, new Christ. Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ, Mark II. Yeah. Christ okay. Zero. There you go. <laughs> Christ Point O. Yeah. And, Diet uh, Christ. <laughs> Caffeine. He is caffeine free. Diet Christ. Yeah. Jesus Christ. And uh, caffeine free. Caffeine free. Jesus Christ. And it's it's made pretty explicit really early on to the audience. To the audience that that he is a, a, a deity. And the fact that everyone kind of glosses over the sort of mystical elements of him. I'm with for a bit, because I think the original setup here is that everyone is so self-involved that they don't even notice the miraculous when it's right in front of them. And I can appreciate mm. that as a starting point yeah. for a show that will eventually incorporate multiple miracles. However, uh-huh. however, um, what I cannot abide and what drives me up the frickin' wall is every time John interacts with, he interacts with almost every character and he does his parrot shtick. Where he'll say like the exact same thing you just said, but he'll switch the pronouns. Well, un- unfortunately, he he spends the early part of the show with Butchie, and Butchie is you know a, a, he's a drug addict, he's a horrendous misogynist, he sells really horrible things, mm-hmm. he steals, he sets a really bad example. So for the first part of the show, John is just repeating really horrible phrases so no that one, he learned from Butchie. So no one thinks much of him, which is fine. However. Uh, it's only, I think, in the second episode mm. that Kai notices that he never says anything for himself and he always repeats what's told to him. Mm. And he doesn't seem to actually understand literally what he's saying. And she's so I'm like, she's the only one who's like, okay, this guy ha- is either he's autistic mm. or in some way dealing with some form of mental illness or mental disability or he's concussed. Something is wrong on Saturn 3. <laughs> and she's the only one <laughs> who's present well, enough to notice it. And I think that's why I like her character just in and of itself. Just because she notices that he's a little weird. You're all having long conversations with this guy and no mm. one notices Anything weird? Well, I think the the approach was uh, less that these people are wrapped up and they so wrapped up in their own lives that they miss the miraculous. I think the the authors were going for something a little bit more like artistically arch. They were going for magical realism. Mm-hmm. So the idea was this is the ordinary world, and miraculous things just sort of happen occasionally. So, but when, it's not the ordinary world. Everything yeah, exactly. Is really weird it's, and obtuse. It's supposed well. It, it's supposed to be maybe a slightly stylized version of the ordinary world, but mm. they went way overboard with the slightly stylized part. Mm-hmm. So it does take place in this weird Twin Peaksian, scuzzy version of the beach, where everybody's a complete weirdo. And so when miraculous things start happening, it's just sort of par for the course, and it doesn't feel miraculous or or even profound. Well, that's the it, thing. It feels like the writers got maybe a little too high <laughs> before writing these scripts. And that's definitely part of the surfer mentality is sort of everything's laid back. Mm-hmm. Take life as it comes. 
nothing is permanent. That's what surfing is all about. And when you sort of enter into the surfing world, it's, there's a lot of analogies between that and entering some sort of spiritual state because you're off land. You're in this sort of new natural element. If you've seen movies like Endless Summer or Step Into Liquid, those surf documentaries, there's a lot of talk about. I think Kelly being... Kennelly is actually in Step Into Liquid. Oh, yeah. Okay. I think so, yeah. That's what I, that's what I read. But uh, yeah, I, I've seen Step Into Liquid. It's quite, quite good. But um, yeah, th- this sort of notion that surfing is a very deeply spiritual experience and that nothing can really be hung on to. It's really more about sort of peace. It's very zen. I was with that I was really yeah. excited because I love surf culture I've never mm. was never really any good at it but I you know I went to the beach a lot as a kid mm. and I was if you around wanna... that that vibe and man I just it, there's a certain peacefulness mm. that comes from the locale that just starts infecting every sort of surrounding interest yeah. that is geographically close to the beach now, if if the characters lived that sort of laid-back philosophy but like thing like dramas in their lives financial troubles personal troubles relationship troubles kind of got in the way of that piece and this mysterious yeah. divine savior you know sort of entered into this first of all you picture jesus christ coming back he's at venice california he, that's where he's hanging out that's, he's, he's that's kind of like a setting a divine setting well, and in i a actually lot of ways. like you know as he starts spending more time with these characters and there are other characters as well there are other drug dealers and criminals yeah, and mark paul gosselar uh, shows up a, and, yeah. a former uh, a former uh, porn star who is now working uh, who's, who's is, a is, Johnny's mother, yeah. Yeah, she she shows up later on and she's actually working as a sex worker off camera. And these are the kind of people Jesus would hang out with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I actually do appreciate a message that comes out in this movie, in the, not movie, this show, mm. uh, by the end of it, which is basically that all of you people are really fucked up. Mm-hmm. All of you have done some really terrible things. However, God, the universe, karma, whatever you want to call it, is not done with you, and it is better that you try to do things right from now on mm. than to give up. Yeah, and I actually think that's a great message. Um, so I, as far as gone as these people are, the idea that that they're, they're still worthy of redemption and they're part of a system uh, that is capable of righting wrongs, that mm. they're they can be part of a solution. That's actually a good message, and I think so many people in their lives feel like they're just too far gone to fix mm. whatever's wrong, or, or it's too, too much hard work. Yeah, uh, but you're you're still it's still there it's every still day. Pat- you're yeah. still you're still trying, and I think that is a positive thing. And the idea that you can't necessarily predict the way in which your actions or the words that you say come back, mm. um, I can appreciate all of that. My problem with the show is that. I don't think the show is too convinced of it. I well, feel like the, the show, show is the show almost that's, smug in its artsiness. It, it the problem with the show is it gets way too laid back and it gets so lost that it kind of loses its train of thought four times per episode. Mm-hmm. And it starts up these like weird, interesting, quirky exchanges that you think are gonna have some sort of if not a profound button, at least some sort of setup for a conversation later. Mm-hmm. And those conversations are never had. And when they, there is a climax, I think it's in episode four. It's early on. It's the one where they have like the barbecue and uh. he kind of gives the sermon on the mounts uh, scene. Well, he does, he does that twice. There's one at night and one during the day. The one at night. Oh, then that's like episode like, Seven or eight. Oh, okay. Actually, yeah. And and they and uh, they talk. Barry says we should have these barbecues more often. Yeah. And um, 
like th- that's a moment where things do sort of come to a head. And even though it doesn't make a lot of sense, you do get tonally at least this feeling that there is some sort of uh, closure and togetherness finally happening. The problem is it's so loose that nothing actually weaves. Well, and it all ends like ends up unraveling as soon as Rebecca de Mornoy starts screaming again. Yeah, there's a uh, there's a there's a special feature on the DVD. It's like 10, 15 minutes oh, long, Oh, I, I, I watched think. this on streaming, so I didn't uh, get the special feature. Yeah, but. there's a special feature that's like decoding the dream, and it's all about this big, epic, shared dream sequence mm-hmm. that occurs around episode eight. And the the scene is mostly, I think it's David Milch, it might be Kem Nunn, but one of the executive producers or writers is on the set, and he's talking to the entire cast, mm-hmm. and he's saying everything that John... At some point, Butchie asks if John is from someplace like Cincinnati, and of course John says Cincinnati, and so he's like, mm-hmm. oh, I guess you're from Cincinnati, and mm-hmm. that's why Cincinnati. It, it, it's very Vonnegut-ish. Yeah. That sort of re- repeating, this sort of weird, divine, well, I thought simpleton was, character. I thought it was being yeah. there. Like, that's what I got out of Yeah, it. Like, uh, Chauncey is, Gardner. Yeah, it's yeah. Chauncey Gardner goes surfing, which honestly <laughs> sounds pretty good. It's a good, um, p- good elevator pitch. But, um... So he's talking about everything that John... And John goes on like a long monologue. Mm-hmm. And it probably sounds amazingly you know, fascinating if you're high. Uh-huh. But if you're not high, it's a bunch of abstract repetition. Like the circle mm-hmm. and the line are on the wall. And so the guy is going through this whole monologue. And he's like, well, the circle represents the first use of symbology that uh, man would use in caves. And then you add the line and all of a sudden you're directing this and you're not speaking in sort of vagaries. And of course, the the circle and the line are also binary. So like, you know, one and a zero. And and I'm watching this and I'm just like, none of this is actually coming out in the text. This is is a, a hazy delightfully marijuana-infused rant that you went on and recorded, but unlike Keith Richards, who woke up and heard, I can't get no satisfaction on his recorder, (laughs) you went on like this really stream-of-consciousness rant about a whole bunch of artistic and philosophical and theological premises, and you don't actually connect them to the narrative in any way whatsoever, so I don't know why it's in the show! Now, if if you're... William S. Burroughs, and you're locked in a motel room, and you're shooting junk, and you're just banging on your typewriter, and you're ripping pages and throwing them over your head, and you don't remember any of this because you're high out of your mind, and Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg are worried about you, and they find you, like, days later, and they find you passed out on the floor, and they take you to the hospital, and they gather up the pages, and they publish that, and they publish it as Naked Lunch. Mm-hmm. That's, one, to- that's one thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even sure okay. that's great, but let's it's, certainly... It's one thing, and I've read Naked Lunch, and it's just like that. It's just these weird threads, and, and uh, Kerouac and Ginsburg tried to make as much sense of this random pile of pages well, as they could. they weren't numbered, so they no. were just trying to figure out... Like, figure they were out what was going educated. on, yeah. Yes. So like, it, it is this weird sort of abstract thing where you don't know what's inspired by what or what it connects to, but... There's weird ideas bursting throughout this big stream of conscious, like stream of drug rant narrative that that David uh, David Williams Burroughs yeah. wrote, and uh, but that you know that's sort of a novel, and you kind of know the way it was written, and you know where it came from, so you have a little bit of context. You know for it's the stream text. of consciousness. You know it's stream of consciousness, and the imagery in the book is so strange and so weird that it's still kind of grabbing you. That doesn't translate to 
a narrative TV series. Yeah, a serialized narrative. Oh. You're expected to, again, in a cinematic medium, doesn't matter if it's a movie, a short, a television mm. series, whatever, um, it exists over a certain amount of time. A book you can pick up and put down, it exists whenever you're reading it. Mm. For a movie, you're expected to sit down and watch this for however long it is. For a TV show, you're expected to sit down and watch it for however long it is. Mm. So it needs to actually capture your attention in that time. I think they thought the novelty of all of this uh, uh, sort of vaporous philosophy and esoteric dialogue that seems to connect back to itself episodes later without actually conveying any particularly tangible meaning Mm. would be enough of a novelty because it is HBO and you're allowed to experiment that people would be fascinated. But in actuality, I think there is a very tangible desire to literalize all of this vagary. Uh And... Every time you start trying to say to yourself, okay, but seriously, though, is he the son of God? Is he an alien? And well, the species has only just come aware of humanity? Or what? What is he saying? What does it mean when he says God is in the movie camera? Like, is he mean like there's a clue in there? Mm-hmm. Or is he just talking about how art is cool, man? And once you start re- breaking it down and realizing that the show itself isn't entirely convinced it's relevant... You well, lose it, a lot of interest, and it, indeed, the ratings of the show were really bad. It, it's it's really interested in saying things that sound profound but aren't, and that's that's the most frustrating thing to me. Yeah. It's like, oh man, what if what if Jesus came back and he, but it wasn't Jesus; it was like Jesus' son. So it's like a new Jesus, and he went to the surfing village. Wouldn't that be cool? Potentially. Uh, okay. Well, what what happens? Sounds more like a sitcom. Uh, than a, a, a bunch of stuff. Okay. Well, let's talk about what happens. Yeah. Let's talk about what okay, actually well, the, happens the, in the show. The uh, the inciting incident for, for everything. Yeah, John appears across the border, and uh, Bruce Greenwood's a grump. He doesn't want his kids doing surfing for any other reason than just for the purity of it. And Rebecca Dermarnay screams at him. Shawnee rejects that, goes and enters a surfing competition, and he is grievously injured and nearly dies. Oh, he he, he uh, breaks he is, his neck. He breaks his neck, and he's he is indeed brain dead. Yeah, Garrett Hunt is his uh, doctor, yeah, and, and he tells the family, you have to make mm. some serious decisions, we can harvest his organs, but he's not coming back. Meanwhile... And Bruce Greenwood immediately says bye, and he runs off uh, for a, several episodes to his mistress in Mexico. Has a quick fight mm. with his wife, and then, yeah, he fucks off. Mm. And uh, meanwhile, Ed O'Neill, who earlier, like towards the beginning of the show, uh, he keeps birds and one of his birds died and Shawnee touched it and the bird came back. Mm. And so when he finds out that Shawnee's in the hospital, for no particular reason, there's no like vision he has, Uh, he he just thinks to himself, he brings the bird. Maybe there's some sort of weird thing here and why why the hell not try? So he goes to the hospital, he brings the bird, the bird nuzzles Shawnee, and then Sean opens his eyes. Not only is he not brain dead, not only is he no brain damage whatsoever, but also his neck isn't broken anymore. Mm. Now, Garrett Dillahunt, being a halfway decent doctor, says to himself, Okay, so God is real. I need to quit my job, and he yeah, does. He, he quits his job. He's like, I, I need. To, this was a legit miracle. I saw them. Like, and he's like, he's looking he, at the X-rays. Like, that is a bro. I'm not mistaken. He was in the room two 
minutes ago. Yeah. Like, there's no way. There's no way whatsoever. And so, like, that's he, he he's broken, and um, they bring Shawnee back. But the thing is, it was a public event. People knew that the kid was seriously injured, and then they see him skating on his half pipe, like, the next day, and all of a sudden people are just like, oh, I guess that kid's... Uh, a miracle kid. Mm. This will be important like seven episodes from now. We really won't make it a thing that the world knows that he basically came back from the dead. Uh-huh. You'd think that would be an important plot point. But no, we have more yelling to do. So on top of that, uh, John's mother comes back in the picture. Uh, she is... Sean's mother. I'm sorry. Did I say, what did I say? Is you said John? John. John. John's mother is... Mary, Mary, I guess. Um, oh God! <laughs> well, she's Mary Magdalene, actually, because oh, she's yeah, a sex guess, worker. And well, she, yeah, Sean's mother is sort of the Mary Magdalene type character, but mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. She uh, she left Sean mm-hmm. on uh, the Yost family doorstep, and then proceeded to go into and become a very well known porn star. Mm-hmm. Um, so the entire Yost family considers her a pariah. Um, she comes back into the picture. At first you think, oh, she's trying to capitalize on Sean, and then you realize, no, she, she just, just wants to be back in his life. And she, she has a really good defense. She was just like, listen, his, his father was a drug addict. Mm. He's still a drug addict. Yeah, I, I think she might have said that she was a drug addict at the time as well, or that she was in a really rough situation. And she thought it was better for the kid to be with loving parents mm. than not to be. Yeah. And that he should be with his actual family. And so she's like, what the fuck was I supposed to do? <laughs> and I'm like, maybe have a conversation, but okay. Yeah, there's... So she comes back into the picture. Um... Oh, what Bru- else happens? Bru- Bru- oh, there's the the meltdown at the motel where Barry like draws a gun and reveals that uh, was it Butchie like used to beat him up and Butchie used is- to beat him up and then I think he was also um, like abused by someone who yeah, lived so- in the motel and that's why he was going to raise it but mm-hmm. then he decided to keep it going and sort of clean it up with Louis yeah. Guzman. Um, he has he, he goes on this long rant, and it's kind of out of nowhere, even for the characters. Like, wait, we don't remember you. Who it, are you? It's like all of a sudden he mm. went from being this mildly eccentric, but nothing you wouldn't see in a sitcom, uh, new owner of a motel who has mm. a, some sort of vision for what he wants to do Is with he- it, to the opening fight from Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> do you make sure to make Yeah, just a lot, a lot of screaming and gun waving. God, I hate the screaming in this show. It There's put so me on edge. much of it. I love Rebecca DuMornay so much. I've, I grew up watching so many of her movies. <laughs> I'm just such a fan. She was a good lady to win through in The Three Musketeers. I like her. All right. And I actually like her in this when her anger is motivated by something. <laughs> but half the time, it's not. Uh-huh. Um, well, well, we do learn why she's such oh a bitter God. person a little bit later okay, on. Okay, so eventually, Sean goes missing with John. Mm. Um, and they think John maybe maybe have kidnapped the kid, or maybe John is, his whatever his mental affliction yeah, well. is, he's just wandered off with the kid. They're worried about Sean. And Sean's mother is panicking, and she has got a gun, and John appears to her mm. in through a, a window in a, a wetsuit, wearing a wetsuit, in yeah. a dream, like in a vision. He's actually mm. not; he's actually somewhere else. Uh-huh. and he explains to her that the reason she's so mad and such a hard ass, and so and, and desperately also- trying to be the best possible caregiver that it makes her into a violent person 
is because one time when she was on acid, she molested Butchie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's been trying to, to sort of for, make up for forget that. it or run past yeah. it ever since. And that also explains why Butchie is so effed up. Well, uh, certainly or, one of the reasons. Yeah. And man, they never like go further into that. Like, they they mention it on the, in that one episode and then bring it up uh, like once again later on in really the abstract. Yeah. Like, in, in a way that only she would know what it meant. Yeah. Um, and boy, does that completely change your perspective mm. on her. Like in every way. Also, I think it's the same episode. This is the episode I was talking about, where Butchie is yelling at his ex-wife or you know, mm. Sean's mother. And she's leaving town. Sean mm. is missing, and he's yelling at her. And every single time, the conversation gets even remotely heated. Mm. Not only does he accuse her of just running off and having sex for money, but he accuses her of running off and having sex for money with. Insert racial epithet here. Yeah. He, and he does it a lot. He, he uses the N-word like five times in that scene. And, and it's and just like, his, I, I that, already really didn't care for him that much, but now I hate his guts. Yeah. And uh, and it's not one of those, uh, no, it's just, don't use the N-word. Jeez, that's it's no, it's reason. no like, place for if, it there. Unless you're and, trying to make a character completely unlikable and ever, like just a or grotesque if, villain. Or, or if his, his racism was somehow... Playing in into like a, another network of characters, you but know? then like later on, it's just it's, like, and then he's just gonna have this sweet moment with Kai at the beach, yeah. and I'm like, no, Kai, do you know? <laughs> do you know how racist he is? Because he apparently he's quite racist, mm-hmm. like really distractingly, well, the, unforgivably. We need to have an intervention. Racist. The show is a little weirdly racist all around because yeah. they, there are some Hawaiian characters that show up later on, and they're treated like these weird comedic. Like stereotypes. I think everyone is though. Like well, every character. True. Like you know, all the 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 surfer kid. I don't know if it's just the kid's an inexperienced actor or this is what mm. they wanted from the performance. But man, the kid has got like oh John Wayne drawl. <laughs> like he's just like hey. Yeah. Well, he he's a real surfer. He's not an actor. I, I, and and I, in fact, that, I, I appreciated him the most, but just because you got the most authenticity from him, he was just playing himself. I thought Kai was pretty good at authenticity. Okay, yeah, but, yeah, but like regardless, yeah, mm. it's. Oof. But um, yeah, these are just mostly unlikable, or at the very least, inscrutable people. Mm. And seriously, most of every episode is people waiting around, having meaningless conversations. Until something later in the episode will happen that is in some way yeah. eccentric. Um, let's see. Other eccentric things. Uh, early in the show, uh, shortly after Bruce Greenwood has run off to spend several episodes with his mistress, uh, he he's done with sleeping with his mistress, and then she turns around to look at him, and he's levitating. Oh, yeah. He started levitating just sort of a, just a, first a couple inches off the ground, uh. later a few feet off the ground. And then I think the last episode, he's like above their heads. Yeah. But he's indoors, so he's able to stay. They don't know if he goes outside, if he'll just keep on floating. Well, there's actually a cute bit after that when they're all outside and like the entire film, like everyone's got an arm on his shoulder. Yeah. And it looks all (laughs) casual, but you know, it's just to keep him from levitating. (laughs) No, I assume if the series had gone on, we would have addressed that more and maybe Mm. at least touched on why that's happening to him the implication is that the yost family is in some way inherently special yeah they're they're, they're touched by god or they're the chosen ones or the prophets or something they're they're, 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 the, the, apo- they're, they're the apostles yeah. i know they're all the every <laughs> one of these characters is the apostles but yeah. 
Why? <laughs> it, Will it, the show ever? Because one it, of the it first things it doesn't unlock anything about new New Testament texts is the mm. thing. Well, it doesn't even get into Revelations. One of the mm. first, I think, the first thing John says because John first John is like introduced to the plot mm. on the Mexican border, but he's introduced in the show. There's uh, uh, Bruce Greenwood is surfing. Luke Perry is watching him surf without Bruce Greenwood knowing about it. Mm. And then, so we see Luke Perry looking at Bruce Greenwood, we cut to Bruce Greenwood, and then we see Luke Perry looking at Bruce Greenwood, but now John's behind him. Mm. But there was a huge wide shot. There's nowhere he could have come from. So yeah, already so it's, it's, it's already Wings of Desire. Something yeah. unnatural is, is occurring here. And the first thing John says is the end is near. Yeah. I think it's worth remembering that in certain Christian texts, the return of Christ was supposed to be the return of the Antichrist. And I kept waiting for something sort of malevolent to start Mm. coalescing a little bit as the idea that maybe this wonderful, magical thing isn't that magical. It'd be like Point Pleasant, you know, like just... Yeah, but but with surfers. Weird satanic... Point Pleasant was on a beach. Yeah, just just weren't surfers. It it made sense. They were yachters. That's right. They They were blue blood. <laughs> Say, Buffy, let's go yachting with Satan. Oh, again, how ah, tedious. Will Satan win the regatta again <laughs> every year? <laughs> Look, we only have so many sheep we can sacrifice. I he like, has an unlimited supply. I just like being able to use the word regatta. Regatta. <laughs> Satan's regatta. Ooh. <laughs> Sounds like an episode. That's the next sci-fi original movie. Yeah. Um... Mm. So yeah, yeah well, and it all, what, what it, all it all culminates just just because there really isn't as much plot as you might think. It all culminates with uh, Luke Perry is going to use his company to yeah, he, he rallies late in the show. That's where Mark Paul Gosler comes in. Yeah, Mark Paul Gosler from Pitch, mm-hmm. who I, I think won our Kansas City Award last year, didn't he? Uh, he, he he's he's, he's great in Pitch, and he's, he's pitch. pretty good here. I mean, he's he doesn't, doesn't have a role. lot to do. But, it's yeah. a smaller role. He plays uh, Luke Perry's like second in command at their surfing business. Mm-hmm. And he's had, trying to push. What was, it was like stinkweed. What stinkweed. was stinkweed? Stinkweed or I, stankweed? Something like no, that. No, I think it was stinkweed. Right. Um, he's trying to push Luke Perry out because Luke Perry is going through some sort of midlife crisis, and he's going to tank the business. Luke Perry uses his last ounce of clout to sign the Yost family and sort of set them up as these weird figureheads. So all this weird stuff that's going on with them mm. could be written off as publicity, and they don't have to become like some sort of sideshow yeah. attraction for the press. Clearly, this is a metaphor for the formation of the first Christian churches. Well, yeah, and they even have like a new mm. sort of symbol, which is a circle uh-huh. and a line and a little arrow. And at first, it looked like they were making like the symbol for masculine, mm. you know, the male-female. Yeah, but instead of an arrow, it's like a, it's just it's a, like a Y. It looks like a stick, it looks like a stick man. Yeah. It looks like a stick man. It, it looks actually very culty and creepy. Like, you kept expecting mm. this to go kind of wicker manny. Every time I kept expecting the show to go somewhere, it chose not to. Well, you know, g- congratulations for keeping us on our toes, but, you know, it would be nice if but you knew where you were going, show. I can't imagine, because here's the deal. I watched this show in about three chunks. I watched like, the first two episodes and mm. the next three and then the last four and mm. or whatever it was. And I had trouble staying interested. Oh, I yeah. can only imagine before DVRs were as prevalent as they are now. Because uh, again, this is 2007. Uh-huh. People had them, but not everyone did. It didn't come standard with everyone's cable. Right. Um, people weren't binging this show yet. 
And as a result, I cannot imagine this being interesting from week to week. You see the first episode and well, it's like, do I need to see the next one? No, I, I think I got it. Because he's, there's he's, no, he's Jesus, right? He's, there's yeah, no okay. sense of rising or falling action. And even though in the last episode it feels like this big rally because they have all of the characters together, that could have come at any moment. I don't feel like this final gathering really came from any kind of organic growing. To, like the characters didn't need to reach a certain point to come together. Mm-hmm. Uh, the plot wasn't building to that. The characters' threads weren't starting to weave. They just were like brushed into a pile. And that it's emblematic of just the show's general chaos that they were clearly trying to say these very profound things, but they weren't interested in telling a story I think, around those profound things. I think a lot of storytellers mm. picked kind of the wrong lessons to learn from Twin Peaks. Nah. Now, Twin Peaks didn't invent eccentricity on television. What it did kind of invent was that eccentricity can be a sort of pop culture zeitgeist. Mm. Like Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman was weird over a decade before Twin Peaks was weird. Yeah. And it's great. Watch it sometime if you haven't. Um, but it was a cult thing. It wasn't Twin Peaks cover of Time magazine. Right. Twin Peaks, watch that first season again. Not the new one, although I want to talk about that in a second because I think that's more what uh, John from Cincinnati was going for. The first season of Twin Peaks is weird and dreamlike and unexpected Mm -hmm. and kooky and eccentric and a little inscrutable. It also moves. It is a freight (laughs) train. Well, and and there's a a central mystery at the center of it Mm -hmm. that the character, many of the characters are working to solve or know different aspects of. So even if you're not grooving on the weird sort of dreamlike tone or sort of the more surrealist elements, you can at least get behind sort of the soap opera elements. There's interpersonal connections that... Exciting incident of yeah. Twin Peaks was someone has died and they were murdered, and that sends everyone running off in different directions to either solve the murder mm-hmm. or hide whatever criminal enterprise they were doing while the cops are looking closely at the town. So the, the inciting incident, John from Cincinnati, is guy shows up and he may and he might be he's Jesus Christ, but there's implication that at one point that he might even be like a robot or a shapeshifter there's a, a scene uh, we didn't even mention this where he stabs himself mm-hmm. like where he's he's uh, the characters constantly try to corner him and get straight answers of course he can't give straight answers it's, it's like watching lost yeah <laughs> he can only repeat what they're saying back or things he's heard from other characters and you get the sense that you know the divine word is in your own words and the yeah. god is within you and uh, etc cetera, etc cetera. but Whenever he's cornered, he doesn't say anything profound because he's only repeating things. And at one point, he just gets so uncomfortable with all of the questioning that he just sort of freaks out and he grabs a knife and he stabs himself in the abdomen mm-hmm. and he bleeds. And then they lift his shirt and he has no wounds. Yeah. But yeah, they talk about like how yeah. because of the way he communicates um, mm-hmm. that he's someone set him on autopilot and he's just kind of running around like a wind up doll. Mm-hmm. And. He's on some sort of path. Like people, someone set him on this path on purpose. He's knocking over all the right dominoes, but he's not really in charge of his actions. Mm -hmm. That's the thing that they're going with. But yeah, again, my point is Twin Peaks got away with its eccentricity because there was something to latch onto. It felt like a real show. Mm -hmm. When Twin Peaks The Return came around, (laughs) that was way weirder than the original Twin Peaks ever was. Way weirder, way less scrutable, way mm. more experimental. But even then, 
as even in the weirdest, but that, least this, eventful this, episode. That was after, after th- you know, nearly thirty years of knowing who David Lynch was, uh, and, true. Kind of, and knowing what David, uh, what Twin Peaks had been. True, but even ignoring that for mm-hmm. a second, every episode of Twin Peaks: The Return is oozing with dread, and dread is infinitely more tantalizing than, huh. Then you have v- whatever that is, that va- va- vaguely interesting aha moments. Yeah, like just just sort of. It's like you know you ever see that? It's a, I know you have, but audience, did you ever see Beetlejuice? <laughs> so there's a scene at the beginning of Beetlejuice where Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis leave their house to get some paint for mm-hmm. his home project, and then they drive back. And there's a scene where he walks into the store, and as he goes out into the store, there's an old man on a rocking chair, uh-huh. and he's telling a story about how well, one day uh, a hippie came into my house. On, ha- on, my, on my... the way in, he says, hey, hey, old ta- old timer, how you doing? He starts telling a story. Oh, I yeah, these kids today. And he keeps mm. on telling the story while he goes into the store. Mm-hmm. And he comes out, and he's still telling the story, and yep. that's the joke. And, and then he leaves, and the story mm. hasn't ended. That guy is John from Cincinnati. <laughs> he will keep telling that story. It won't get anywhere. Eventually, you find out he had an onion on his belt. Like, it won't go anywhere, but it's vaguely interesting. Some people call me Pip. Yeah, yeah. It just, but that's it. Now, again, the show was canceled. Maybe it would have gone somewhere. Maybe it would have built something really organically and unusually. And maybe it would have completely changed in mm. every regard by the end of the series had it continued. But it didn't. Mm. And this is part of the problem with serialized television, yeah. which is you're not always going to get to the end. You have to make sure people are satisfied with what you give them now. In, and yeah, there's nothing satisfying about it. Feed this. into the larger mystery or conclude a mini story within the arc of the show. And the mm-hmm. show does neither. It's it's sculpting with porridge. It's There's nothing satisfying yeah. about watching an episode of it. Mm. I think, I know the show has fans, and I think there's something that could be captivating. Maybe it just wasn't for me. Maybe it wasn't at this point in my life. Mm. I think there's something that could be captivating about its groove. I think if you're not familiar with surfing culture, if this is just some sort of, um, you know, kind of unusual landscape and way of talking, and it might be kind of interesting to visit it. And Mm. maybe if you're not... Maybe if you're open to some vague theosophical notions, I think that's a word, Um, the sort of rambling... Theological is the word you're looking for. This sort of, I was going for theological and philosophical, whatever. The rambling, maybe this makes sense if you look at it the right way, or maybe it's literally just gobbledygook. Mm. Maybe that could hit people at the right time when they're just like, "Yeah, man, yeah. finally a show gets it. Shows asking the big questions. <laughs> well, what is that question? I have no idea. What's here, the answer? I have no idea. But I think it's in here. Maybe. Here's my suspicion. I've I've seen a lot of interviews with David Lynch. I, I love him a lot. I've looked up interviews. I've seen him on TV shows, and he is notoriously and admittedly bad with the spoken word. He doesn't. He likes to communicate through images and through art, and. When people try to hold his feet to the fire about, like, what's your show really about? He, I don't think he's capable of answering questions like that. Mm-hmm. I, well, he, doesn't, he doesn't, I don't think he thinks that's the point. He, the he point thinks is that, you yeah. should figure that out. Like, and, I'm going to give you what's in my head, and so if when, you figure yeah, when, it out, cool. So when somebody says, what's Inland Empire really about? He, he has to come up with some sort of catchphrase. It's about a woman in trouble. You know, he'll, he'll say something really vague like that, because that's yeah. a, that's as, as tantalizing as it can be. He doesn't want to spoon feed you. Well, and, and it's not even that. It's that he doesn't have in his mind words for what he's trying to express in just the images. The images are the pure part of it. Mm-hmm. And... 
so when you see interviews with him, they're really aggravating because he's, he can only be really vague. That's his only mode of thinking. And I think the creators of this show saw those interviews and thought, wow, what a fascinating thing. I'm going to affect that. Yeah, because this is not somebody who thinks like that. It's somebody who is trying to behave like somebody who thinks like that. And again, if you watch that special, you can find it online. If you watch it, it's like decoding the dream from John from Cincinnati. If you watch that bit, and again, it's like 10, 15 minutes. Mm. It's all it's it's taking that scene that David Lynch would do and he would articulate to the people who needed to put it, bring it to life, mm. what he wanted it to look like, how he wanted it to feel. But he wouldn't just come out and say, here's literally everything that it means. Yeah. That short is the guy saying, here's literally everything that it means. Mm. And I'm like, you're not trying to figure this out. You've got this figured out and you're finding the vaguest way to tell us. And that's disingenuous. Yeah. And that's the yeah, thing yeah. that that's the thing that watching that mm. that clip sort of snapped into place for me. Why aren't I responding to this? Because it's dreamlike logic and philosophy and mm. ideas and plot. They don't feel like a natural extension of someone who thinks this is the way to tell the story. It seems like someone who is trying to obfuscate yeah, a less interesting yeah, well, story and try to make it seem smarter or more deep than it is. Yeah, well, uh, it's another one of those phenomena. Like uh, you see this a lot on like Cartoon Network or uh, certain animated shows. Some of them are really strange these days because we were all raised on you know weird shows like well the Ren and Stimpy show. Mm. Um, John Kay has some pretty horrendous, pretty horrendous track record at yeah. this point, but he did open the door for a lot of other ambitious animators. And uh, you can always tell which shows were made by people who were genuinely strange and had weird ideas and just wanted to spill them out. And the ones who were trying to sound strange and uh, like the... There's a very clear delineation between movies made by weird people and posers and yeah, and the, and the people who are just trying to normal people trying to make weird movies. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there are people who see, oh, this there's an audience for this. Yeah, I can do this. But there's you know, you put on something like a procedural cop show. You don't need to be weird to do that. Mm-hmm. You can just work with classic genre structure and put together something pretty satisfying. And there's really nothing wrong with it. Mm-hmm. But when you get into the artsy fartsy mode, the pretentious mode, <laughs> the you need to be pretty genuine because man, there is there are a few things that are more insufferable mm-hmm. than a movie that claims it's deep and smart and, and has it, nothing. And it's not. It's, yeah, well, it's made by people who have not thought out all the so, stuff. Yeah, and I'm not the, saying the creators, this is that, but I don't think the presentation is sincere. Yeah, the, the, I feel the, like crea- the creators of John from Cincinnati are trying to make something that looks really complex and strange, but they're not strange people and they don't know how to speak that language. At least that's how it comes across. Yeah. Maybe they do have some complex, strange stories. This isn't it. Okay. Here's what I'm going to say. Like we, we talk about like if the show had lasted a hundred episodes, mm. first of all, it's an HBO show, so it probably wouldn't have. So let's say 40. Let's say <laughs> okay. it lasts four solid seasons and gets to end on its own terms. Mm. Where does this go? Well, like where, what's I mean the Yost family the, the will, will, is, be, will they become if, like prophets and lead a whole movement and if, will if one they of were them gonna, turn on them and if like st- yeah, if, if we're gonna or? stick with the biblical illusion it would have ended with a, like a, a crucifixion and a resurrection who's crucified John of course uh, John okay. John is sort of, like he's just sort of like the mascot but he ends up being sort of like the sacrificial lamb as it were he becomes 
the, the Christ-like figure. See, I thought and, that was uh, going to be Sean. I thought that was the oh, point okay. of like he's sort of passing because it. Okay. like that's a you know it's an Easter. Kind well, of thing. but we already had Sean's death and resurrection, so I think they would have had to. Uh, skew uh, essentially in order just to give the show any kind of focus skew more biblical mm-hmm. and sort of follow a more traditional christ narrative who persecutes them like where's the persecution come from oh like like, like who, who's, there, the, there, who's like, like the romans the is occupying it like social force? media or are they all like really pissed at him like on twitter yeah i guess so yeah pilot.com is after him oh. <laughs> the YouTube commenters, the YouTube commenters, it's all the YouTube are, are torturing him and, and mm. crucifying him on mm. on the interwebs. That all sounds pretty bad, honestly. Um, well, let's, let's look. Just... There, there's a, actually a really great way to tell like a modern Christ story, like on Venice Beach. Yeah, I just think do, so. just do it. I think the show gets actually pretty close. Well, it's, a it's imp- of times. I keep saying Venice. It's Imperial Beach, but you know, it's Venice. Similar. It's more or less Venice. That's so, uh, that's the, if it was so set you, in Venice, could, we would say nothing weird about. You it. You could have a pretty straight, very collegey type of movie or TV show about a Christ figure, or heck, just make it Jesus coming to Venice Beach, gathering up the apostles, going through all the same stuff: sermons on the mount, loaves and fishes, resurrection of Lazarus, all of those events from the Bible. Just do it in sort of a casual Baz Luhrmanny kind of way. Might not be great. I don't think there's but, anything casual about Baz Luhrmann. I don't know well, where you got that uh, from. <laughs> Romeo plus Juliet is. You know what? It, you know what it now. is? It's a chillaxed Southland Tales. There, uh, without nearly as much stuff happening. That's a bad analogy, right there. Well, I think it's an apt analogy. Yeah, well, no, I, I mean, think it's, it's just unflattering. It's, oh, yeah, it's unflattering. That's the word I was yeah. looking for. Um, so was John mm. from Cincinnati canceled too soon? Do you think? It, do you think it, <laughs> let's be honest. Here, do you think it could have found its groove? No, no. There's no shape here. There was no direction it was headed. Uh, there, there's no overarching tone, theme, or character. That could have carried it onward. It should have stopped after episode three and it just kept on grinding on with as little direction as it had at the start. No. (laughs) It was not canceled too soon. Okay, well, yes. (laughs) I I agree. Okay. Yes, it was canceled too soon? I agree that it was not canceled too soon. I think it was, I think... I think it was very generous of HBO to give it a whole season. Uh, yeah, well, and... I mean, that's how they work. They make the whole season and then just pump mm. it out and take their chances. No. But, like, I think, like... When we watched a Vinyl, I, it was a little bit of a tough slog because you think, oh, it's like... How many episodes was Vinyl? It was a lot. It was like 20 or so, or... Was it? Tw- no, it wasn't. No, it wasn't It was just long. a long... I think it was like a long... No. 10 episode like they were and, all an hour long and yeah the thing with hbo is the shows are variable length they're given more time to play and i think they're like episodes of game of thrones that are like just proper 90 minute movies mm-hmm. uh yeah there were only 10 episodes of vinyl. okay vinyl, but there were some episodes of vinyl that were like yeah 70 minutes long and mm-hmm. you weren't sure how long it was going to be so it was difficult to schedule uh, but thanks uh, vinyl but uh, thank uh, john from cincinnati luckily they were in and out in 46 minutes anyway mm-hmm. as if there were commercials even though there weren't uh so it was short i think that's maybe, the best thing i can say about it you know what i think might have helped the show hmm. if it was half an hour you think so? I think if it was half an hour, if it was more concentrated, they would have mm. been forced to get more incident in it. I think it would have been more interesting. At least because it would have... a lot, seriously, a lot of every episode is waiting for the thing in the, this episode to happen. Uh-huh. 
And it's not, and they get they want to have like this sort of lazy days by the beach, just sort but of. But it doesn't like, it's feel like, lazy. Everybody's yeah. stressed out all the time. I know. I think that's what they're getting at, but they don't know how to make it come across. And mm. I think if you just cut to the chase, mm. I think you would have had something. But no, this this show doesn't work. I, I'm glad we watched it because we get a lot of requests for this one. But no, well, I don't think this one. I don't think this works. I'm glad we have watched it. I'm not glad that I watched it though, because this was just a slog, man. All right, fair enough. Well, mm. next week on Cancel Too Soon. Uh, well, actually, no, later this week, because this episode was kind of late, and mm. we don't want to fall behind in our yeah, schedule. We're going to do another failed pilot. This is a failed pilot I've been wanting to do for a while. I've never seen it, but what a pedigree. <laughs> it is a backdoor pilot. It's a TV movie starring Dolph Lundgren mm. as a U.S. Marshal who becomes a bodyguard. <laughs> also, and I, I didn't know this word until I just saw the like the wikipedia page of this uh-huh. he's leucophobic leucophobe what is a leucophobe fear of a specific color okay so the fact that this is called blackjack might mean he's scared of the color black wow let's hope they handle that well mm. it was also directed by john woo hooray who did uh, lost in space which we covered last year he failed pilot as well that pilot was actually pretty good, so maybe Blackjack's pretty cool. <laughs> we shall see. <laughs> we shall see. So we'll be reviewing that later this week. A mm, couple days. A couple of days, uh, but we'll leave this up for a little bit so people can discover John from Cincinnati. Um, if you're one of the fans of the show and you think we missed something deeply profound, like I think we got what the show was trying to do. We just didn't buy it. Yeah. But if we missed something, let us know. Mm-hmm. And certainly you can email us. Whitney, what's the email address? Uh, Cancel too soon at gmail.com. That makes sense. <laughs> um, we'll do a letters episode sometime in March. Yeah, pretty uh, soon. Yeah, we did one about a month ago. And, you know, we I don't think we collect the letters as fast mm. as, as we would need to to do it every week or anything like that. Well, so we'll do it soon. What I would like to read, though, is uh, well, I guess we'll do this on the monthly movie, because on one of our monthly movies, we posited a challenge to oh, people. Yeah. And I wanted to read some of those on the air. But yeah, the, our, I'll save that for, for the Patreon subscribers, because that was a question we asked them. But yeah, if you are a Patreon subscriber, you mm. may have noticed that we have a whole bunch of bonus content. And uh, in fact, this episode that you're listening to right now was the result of a Patreon poll. Pa- uh, patrons at the lowest tier and, and upwards get to vote for an episode of this show every single month uh and this episode you voted for john from cincinnati thank you very much i hope you enjoyed the episode we'll have another poll going up on the site in a couple of days um but uh also we have bonus podcasts including the cancel too soon monthly movie where we review tv movies tv specials and other forms of you know sort of flash in the pan ephemera Uh, That doesn't quite fit the rules of the show proper. And we just did a really interesting TV movie there called Lady Killers, which is a gender role reversed cop movie in which Marilu Henner from Taxi plays a cop who is investigating a serial killer who is murdering male strippers. And while we were watching this and we were talking about this sort of blend of TV movie thriller and teasing the next TV movie thriller we're going to do on the Cancel Tuesday Monthly Movie, we were trying to think of what sort of thriller titles haven't been used. 
Ah, so but for, specifically of the legal persuasion, mm-hmm. like erotic thrillers about lawyers or judges or other people in the legal professions yeah. who get embroiled in some sort of erotic thriller. So like guilty as sin, mm-hmm. which or, has been taken. Uh, like, so, yeah. yeah, exactly. Or body of evidence, mm-hmm. which has also been taken. What's left? There's only so much legal jargon, and people actually had some really fun ideas. So, <laughs> on the next Cancel Tuesday Monthly movie, we will read those. Yeah, yeah. So, if you haven't joined up yet, it's patreon.com slash canceled too soon. Canceled is spelled with only one L. Mm-hmm. Hooray. It's easier, it's faster that way, it's streamlined. <laughs> uh, and Drop the the. Just Facebook. It's cleaner. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Mm. That's available, and and we really appreciate every single person who has the means and has the wherewithal and the the desire to contribute and help keep the show afloat because it wouldn't be afloat without you. Mm. That's just a fact. We just wouldn't (laughs) be able to commit the time. So it really, really helps us out, and I really appreciate it. If you can't afford to help out on Patreon, we understand completely, but uh, tell a friend, leave us a review on iTunes or whatever service you're listening to the show on. Um, that really helps us find larger audiences, get us higher up on various algorithms. Mm-hmm. Um, follow us on Twitter at CancelCast. You know, tag mm-hmm. us on Follow Fridays. Just help spread the word. Mm-hmm. It would really, we, it would really help a lot, and we'd really appreciate it. So. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We will see you later this week to talk about John Woo's Blackjack. And that's a wrap. We'll see you next season.